pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand and yet read his word. And may his uh, spirit be that that teaches us. And uh, we will press on to uh, what does it mean to be an adequate servant of the new covenant. Father, we come before your throne, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we come today even with hearts of thanksgiving. Father, I pray that your people um, in this country, in this, in this fellowship, in this town, would understand how much gratitude we should have to you. Father, we many have been through some tough stuff. And yet, Lord, uh, you have been faithful. You have encouraged us. You have carried us. And, uh, Father, even to this day, you minister to us. Father, um, it is so easy to be distracted by the things of this world. We beg your forgiveness. And yet, Father, we rejoice that we are children of the King. We have, as we heard earlier, been bought and paid for with a price. And Father, as we who draw to you for even our daily bread, Father, may we uh, continue to bow before your throne as servants of the Most High God. Thank you, Lord, for your, for your word. Thank you for your precious bride, your church. And Father, may we, uh, may we rejoice at the amazing things that you have done in anticipation of what you will do. In Christ's name, amen. Beginning in verse 6, chapter 3. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stone came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness of our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever the Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Interesting text, um, and, and we've been dealing with this, but I have a letter I want to share with you because I believe that the church here 
has completely ignored what the new covenant is. Completely. All right? And I have a letter that was actually dated June 15th of 2007. All right? And I'll read it to you, and it's just part of the letter, but I'll just read it to you. And it speaks, I believe, probably greater to what we are here for than anything else that you've been enlightened with. Okay? Let me read your letter. Several years ago, I preached a Sunday morning worship service in a Baptist church in Kiev, Ukraine. It's one of the most moving experiences of my life. The converted house was crammed with hundreds of people sitting and standing wall to wall. More were on the porch peering through an open windows into the main room. Even more in the surrounding the building were looking toward the pulpit while listening to outdoor speakers. The people were reverent, subdued, and prayerful as this service unfolded. The volunteer choir, dressed in street clothes, sang several anthems of praise. The congregation sang hymns from memory, and there were spontaneous times of impassioned prayers for the lost. The pastor asked me to bring the third message of the morning, and then called to the people who wished to repent and follow Jesus Christ to come to the platform. When I finished preaching on Psalm 19, two hours of the service had gone by. I simply asked those who wanted to repent of their sins to follow Jesus Christ in faith to come to the elders on the platform. Immediately, people began to come. The crowd adjusted so that the folks could find their way through. As they came, many touched them and hugged them and squeezed their hands and arms. There was an audible murmur of tearful prayer. An hour and a half later, the last person had come, and the final hymn was sung. There was no coercing, no manipulation, no prodding, just a quiet waiting as people came. The most heartwarming of all was what happened when the repenters reached the little platform. They were told to kneel before the people and the elders. A microphone was held to their mouths. And they were asked to repent of their sins and confess Jesus as Lord so all could hear. Each one did that, humbly broken in spirit, desperate for salvation. With no sense of self-consciousness, they publicly turned from sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoicing throughout the service, people were embracing those who had received the body of Christ and the service ended with a precious little girl quoted a poem, and three little girls sang a love song to Jesus. There was no entertainment, no clever technique, no effort to make salvation easy, no attempt to maneuver the crowd, no superficial performance. The word of God had been preached. People prayed for its power to be released, and released it was. Frankly, I didn't want to leave. That Sunday morning in Kiev left an indelible mark on me. What happened at that little church was so simple, and yet it is the heart of what you and I have staked our eternal destinies on. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Kind of fascinating in our day and our age and our technology and our techniques and our methodologies. And yet I would argue that the reason that it is that way is because we do not understand what our ministry is. 
This text here, Paul is fighting against what you and I stand in in awe of. I listen and I hear what is going on in the body of Christ today, and we should be ashamed. We should be ashamed. And I'm not just this fellowship. I'm talking the church in Castle Rock ought to be ashamed. I think some in this church should be ashamed. Because however you cut it, you've got your pride in the way. It is very difficult for people to understand what it means to be broken before the Lord. We last week looked at Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame. And we realized that there was no way to be saved apart from the provision of Christ Jesus on that cross. Not even those great men and women of the faith could be saved without what Christ did on the cross. His work was so massive and so encompassed, it extends from the past to the future. And it covers the sins of all who believe. God provided in Christ something better. Better than what they had, the covenant of the law. The law is good. The law is right. The law is true. But there had to be something better. All the covenant of the law did was point out their sins. From Abel to Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. They were all hoping for something better. Full redemption. A redemption that could not happen without the Lord Christ Jesus. Our text, Paul is dealing with the distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Pointing out that the Old Covenant had its function. It symbolized and pointed to the New Covenant. Now the New Covenant has come. The Old Covenant is obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13. In Corinth, false had come in. As usual. Please understand that. False teachers do not go to false teaching churches. They don't have to. False teachers go to true teaching churches. They were teaching that the old covenant, its rituals, its rites, its ceremonies, and if you didn't adhere to those, then God will not accept you. Sadly, some in the church in Corinth, Christians, were getting caught up in this, demanding believers live under the old covenant. And what they would do is they would blend the two. It becomes ceremony mixed with reality. The Bible teaches that's heresy. It is heresy. The old covenant had a purpose. The purpose has been set aside when the new covenant comes. Now then, if you don't think this isn't important, and you think, well, this is just you know, on and on and on, then why is it so often mentioned in the New Testament? If the Bible repeats something to me, 
He's trying to get it through my thick head. I read you that letter about the church in the Ukraine. You ever see that in America? They badger them. I, I watch people says I had to get up and go so it would prime the pump. Prime the pump? Yeah, if I got up and walked down there, I'm already saved. But if I get up and walk down there, then those who are being called will come. Really? Show me that in the Bible. The Jews were furious with the Apostle Paul because of this issue. And that's part of the reason that you see the personal attacks. See, they're not ready to accept the old covenant as obsolete. The new covenant had come in the person of Christ. And yet, even to this very day, there are some in the church who associated or associated with the church who believe and are trying to hold on to the old covenant practices. The old covenant ceremonies. Part of salvation. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you know what this is? You know what we call that? They call it an altar. And we need that. Why? Everybody's going to get mad. He's going to start moving the furniture. <laughs> Why do we need that? I had to hold the offering plates on. <laughs> Everybody knows what that's for. But what do we need that for? But see what we do? But that's just how we do it. Okay, now all of a sudden traditions. Now, if you come in next Sunday and this thing is still here, it's not that I'm a heretic. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it, it's just things that you and I, I watch us go through and you ask yourself a question. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? The old covenant ceremonies, I, I see them today used. Not, and I can take Roman Catholicism or I could take the Mormon church or some of those. And I can show you even the uh, Adventist that, that you have to worship on Saturday and keep the Sabbath holy. Really? Really? That's on the old covenant. I don't need that. Jesus even made the comment that we will worship in spirit and truth and the time is now. Some come to Christ by faith. They come to repentance in Christ. They are saved and then they are told now that you are saved. You keep the mosaic rituals. The ceremonies. You maintain the Sabbath, the feasts, the, uh, the circumcisions, the dietary laws. If you go look at the Dutch Reformed, that's what they do. They will fast every Sabbath. And I love hanging around them because I don't. Okay? You know, it's, just, it's the Sabbath day. I'm fasting. That's good. We're going down to the steakhouse. I'm buying unclean meat. But it's been cooked. Charcoal. Okay? That burnt offering thing. And everybody says, well, that's mean. No, it isn't. I'm trying to open the brother or sister's eyes. You don't have to do that. The dream came to Peter. All the food of the land. And he says, what? 
Give thanks and eat. I mean, listen to what we do. And we call it, it, it's an external action that we are trying to transmit our spirituality. And Paul hates that. Paul has to deal with both issues. Works are going to save you? Really? Oh, no. You're saved by faith. Okay? But you maintain that salvation by the sacraments. Why do they have Mass every day in the Roman Catholic Church? Because you're supposed to. Why? Every day, every day, every day, every day. Goes over. Why does a priest give absolution? How's come that is? Listen, I cannot give you absolution. Did you know that? I know who does. I ain't him. Okay? That, that's the kind of stuff that I watch happening and it carries in. It carries in. Why do people think that the pastor is more holy than they are? I got news for you. If you're either clothed in Christ's righteousness or you're not. All right? And there's no difference between you and me. I'm clothed in the same righteousness that Christ is clothed in. You know what I'm teaching on Sunday night on sanctification? Do you know that you are as holy now as you're ever going to get? You may not believe it. You may not act like it. But it doesn't mean it ain't true. If you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, how holy are you? You're only as holy as God. Huh? Can he say that? No, the Bible does. Do you understand that? And yet we want to add to it. If I do this, or if I do that, if I come to this, or if I come to that. No, doesn't change it. Doesn't change it. Paul's deals with both of these, whether it's the ceremonies or whether it's adding to your salvation by works or whether you think your works are going to save you. He says both are wrong. Both are wrong. Neither are needed to be saved, nor are they needed to maintain. He's against sacramental religion. He's against mechanical Christianity. And he confronts it. In this text. Chapter 2. Verse 14 and 15. Thanks be to God. Who leads us in triumph in Christ. And manifests through us. The sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing. Verse 16. To one the aroma of death to death. To the other life to life. Who's adequate for this? Who is adequate to be the aroma of Christ to God and to be the aroma of Christ to humanity? The fragrance of Christ. Who's adequate? And we all... God has made me adequate. Okay? Really? The problem is, what is the aroma? 
And that's the new covenant message. What I read you in that letter is the new covenant message. And you watch people push through crowds to say, I want to follow Jesus and come unto repentance. That's why you can have a three hour worship service with nothing happening but the explaining of the word of God. Try that in America today. This message is the glory that is listed in your outline. It gives life. It produces righteousness. It is permanent. It brings hope. It is clear. It is Christ-centered. It is spirit-energized. And it is transforming. What mechanism can you do to enhance that? It gives life. Verse 6. It gives life. We are servants. We are slaves. We are ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And you know what? We need to understand what this is. Okay? Which means it's going to take a little bit of thinking. Okay? We may have to close that door if the aroma of the birds and everything starts coming up. Everybody, is that the new covenant? No, that's the burnt offering. When I look at this text, it says it's not of the letter, but of the spirit. Why? The letter does what? Kills. Now, you guys are going to have to stay with me. If you're not going to stay with me now, sleep now. Verse 7, speaking of the old covenant, what does it say? It is the ministry of death. Look at verse 9. This old covenant was the ministry of what? Condemnation. All right. The old covenant, hear me well, is a killer. It is a ministry of death. It is a ministry of condemnation. I can stop right there and say, why do you want to get under that? Why do I want to add that to anything? Why did God give the law? Okay, I can tell you. Here's what Paul says. Paul tells us the law comes because of the transgression. That's why God gave us the law. God gave the law. Okay? Whether it is the mosaic ritual ceremony or the moral. I don't care which one. He gave that law to show man how sinful he is. I remember a confrontation that I had many years ago. A lady very active in the church, very prominent in the church. Had, you know, if they had VBS, she was there and she did this. And she was Sunday school this and Sunday school that and Sunday school this. They were getting ready to make me the senior pastor and she was furious. All right. And we had this. She wanted to have a sit down. And I was like, all right, let's, you know, whatever. And I had I only known. I went and met with her, and her. we talked back and forth about some issues and all the rest of it. And she looked me in the eye, and she says, you need to understand something. By his stripes, I was healed. He had to die for you. 
You got that? My sins required his death. Her sins only required a beating. Really? This was not a biblically stupid person. But what happens is we start thinking, I'm not so bad at this. I tell people that before I came to Christ, the only difference between you and me is what you thought about, I did. It's the only difference. What's the difference in condemnation to God then? Whether you do it or you think about it, which one condemns you? Both. The law is... the to. Uh, in Galatians 3, uh, this is purely for Stephanie. The law is our schoolmaster. I know some of you guys have no idea what a schoolmaster is. You know what? There's kids in this room who do not know what corporal punishment was. I am a survivor of corporal punishment. So I had a shop teacher who had a boat paddle that... I still scarred over it. The correct translation is the law is our tutor. (laughs) Sorry, Stephanie. The law drives us to Christ. It shows us our desperate need of a redeemer. God puts down the law... God puts down the standard. It is good and it is noble. Okay, now, you guys, guys got to stay with me on this. Leviticus 18.5. You're going to have to go look at these up yourself. 18.5. It says that the law of the Lord is the path of life. Okay. Now, Paul tells us that the law is good. It is noble. It is right. It is true. Leviticus says that it is the path of life. Obey my statutes and my commandments and you shall live. It's the path of life. There's nothing wrong with the law. Please, please understand that. It is holy. It is just. It is good. It is righteous. God lays it down. It says, this is the path of life. The path of blessing. It is the way to prosperity. It is the way of peace. It is the way of joy. Okay? No problem with the law. None whatsoever. Then why is it obsolete? The problem is the sinner. Let me tell you something. Are you ready? You're all sitting down. If you can keep the law, you will be saved. Absolutely. No problem. Just keep it. Okay? And I'll make it easy on you. I'll make it easy on you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just stop right there. Just do that. Okay? Now, if you can do that, you will be saved. You have no need of the cross. Okay? I remember reading on Martin Luther. Had got, he had been a lawyer. And he had gone to seminary. decided he was going to be a priest. And he used to get up in the morning. They, before breakfast, they would have confession. 
I always thought that would be the best time to have it because days young. <laughs> okay, it was not uncommon for the for Martin Luther to confess for five hours. How in the world do you get into trouble in the 1500s at night and have to confess for five hours? But he would say, I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's pretty good, huh? The sinner can't keep the law. In the law, there are absolute moral principles that never, ever change. You know, we can cruise through it if you think about it. Well, you know, today I haven't coveted much. Okay? I haven't committed adultery today. I haven't stolen anything today. My parents are dead. So I don't have to honor them. All right? So I'm just cruising along. Right? No problem. Still got to do deal with number one. Nothing this day moved my affections from you, God. Bummer. And I start with number two. You have these moral standards that never change, but in the law, there are also symbols of the coming redemption. Rituals, rites. So when Paul speak to a practicing Jew, and if you do it today, they're still under the old covenant, they would be striving to obey the moral principles of the law, and at the same time, they'd be going through the ceremonies and the symbols that are showing, quote-unquote, their morality that were symbolized the coming redemption. And you know what happens? Every single time, you fall short. Whether it's circumcision, which was a symbol of the cleansing of the heart. What about the washings? What about baptisms? What about these symbols of cleansing? See, the real moral code in the Old Covenant is done with symbols. All right? It's external. But the real moral code is what? Internal. The ceremonies are on the outside. The moral code is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The ceremony symbolizes that moral code. But they all pointed that you need to be redeemed. You can't do this. The moral code was God's standard for life. The symbols were the pictures, the previews of the redemptive work to come in the person of Christ. The moral side of the law was the path of life. The sinner couldn't keep it, no matter how hard they tried. They just couldn't do it. Listen, if you go to the seventh chapter of Romans, you go look at it yourself. But the seventh chapter of Romans, verse 9, Paul thought he was pretty good. He said he was pretty good. Remember what he says here. The law is a ministry of death. The law is a ministry of condemnation. It is a killer. In Romans 7, he says, you know what? I, I, was, I was pretty good. But he says, I was once alive. 
apart from the law. He thought he was okay. He thought he was okay. I run into these people on a daily basis. I haven't been divorced. I provide for my kids. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't coveted. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not so bad. Paul says, I saw the law of God and I died. I died. It was a commandment of life. It's the path of life. And it resulted in death. How is that? Paul says, sin deceived me. Sin killed me. Two ways the law of God kills. Okay, I'm talking the old covenant. First, it creates a living death. When I see the law of God... I died. Why? I am frustrated. I have sorrow. I have guilt. I have despair. I have shame. It is a living death. It kills my joy. It kills my peace. It kills my confidence. It kills my hope. And it kills my fulfillment. Paul says, and probably many in this room, I thought I was okay. Until I really saw the law of God. And the law of God said, you know what? I'm not okay. I'm in deep trouble. And that will plunge you into despair. It's a living death. Okay? The second way that the law kills is it kills with the anticipation of eternal death. Anticipation of eternal death. It's a spiritual death. Let me share with you a text. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay? The law brings about a spiritual death. If you try to keep the law on your own, do you understand what that text just said? You are damned. Okay, when you see the word cursed, it doesn't mean somebody's using profanity at you. It means you're headed straight to hell. You break one law one time. You're damned. Okay? Carry that burden. I tried to keep the law. I did. Did my best. But that new Corvette, buddy. Man. Guess what? Hope you like the smell of sulfur. See what the law does? It is a ministry that kills that kills. And yet, even in that condemnation, there is the glory of God. See, Galatians, he's not talking about a curse that you're going to be frustrated. 
He goes, I just feel a lot of shame and guilt right now. I'm just cursed. No, man. He's talking alienated from God for eternity. The law killed me, Paul said in Romans 7. I wasn't what I thought I was. He, he uses, I am a man undone. I am a man exposed. A life that took on a living death. Frustrated. Unfulfilled. Sentenced to an eternal curse. But you know what's amazing about that? At that point, the law has done its work. That's what it's for. John Calvin called it worm theology. And I was like, worm theology? What does that mean? Why? You have to come to a place that I want every one of you to think about this. When you came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, were you undone? Were you crushed? Did you realize that I am so desperate? There is nothing here of any value. Did you understand that? I know people who come to salvation say, well, you know, I just put it off for a little while, but I went ahead and walked the aisle, said a prayer, I'm good. Well, what was you saved from? What was you saved from? The Apostle Paul is saying, you have the old covenant that condemns you. The law was given to show you absolute desperate condition you're in. Remember, a person one time told me, I said, well, Terry, the reason you're so bold and you're so just out there is because you were in such a dark place. And when the light came on, poof, there he was. You know, and it just was a radical transformation for you. Let me tell you something. If you have not had a radical transformation, you ain't his. I don't care what degree of saint you think you are. But you were in desperate place. Against, you were an enemy to a holy, righteous, true God. He shuts men up. That's what the law does. He can, the law confines them with no escape. The reality that they are doomed and damned sinners. That's what the law does. Just what it's supposed to do. It was the path of life. But it was unattainable. It left the sinner realizing that he was dead. It has a ministry of death. It has a ministry of condemnation. And it is a killer. Exactly what it was supposed to do. Take any old covenant saint. I don't care. Any one of them. And they knew that salvation was by faith. 
Because they knew that it was faith of Abraham that caused God to justify him. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. They knew that Noah was saved by grace through faith. The Old Testament people really understood and they knew that salvation came when you went to God in faith and received His grace. What was before that? A sense of your own sin. Helplessness. Hopelessness. And I believe that built into the fallenness of mankind... We think we can pick ourselves up. I have seen it. I have heard it. I have witnessed it. And it is just heartbreaking. We can achieve what God wants us to achieve on our own. Let me tell you something. We talk about Adam. Okay? We kind of get bummed out about Adam. Right? You know, if he hadn't done it, you would have. Truthfully. Okay. Adam lived in the Garden of Eden and fellowship with God in the cool of the afternoon. Okay. Then he sinned. All right. Now I want you to think about this for a second. At the time that he sinned, his first retribution was to be kicked out of the garden. Right? Right? Okay, he's kicked out of the garden. What was his second retribution? Well, he had to dig ditches and in and, and the weeds and, you know, he grows stuff like I grow stuff. You throw tomato seeds out and you get thistles. But they're cute thistles. Okay? You know what his first one was? His youngest son killed his oldest son. Do you know he lived almost to the time of Noah? Adam did. He got to see man at his height. You eat of this, you will die. And he got to see death over and over and over and over. And he had to bear that burden to think, I brought this on. Tell me that ain't a spiritual death. Tell me that ain't frustration. How would that work with your fulfillment? How would that work with your shame? You see these murderers? I brought them. See what the law did before there was even a law. A sense of sin, a hopelessness to think that we can actually do it again. Eve kept naming all of her kids thinking, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one that's going to get us out of this. And it just didn't work out. It is not until we have been driven to absolute bankruptcy to the point that we have no confidence in ourselves. will you be saved. Look at Luke 18. Go check it out. The publican. You've all read the text before. The publican is beating on his chest. Have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. What covenant is he under? The old covenant. And the old covenant had crushed his heart that he would beat on his chest and say, please, I beg you, have mercy on me. 
Under the conviction of the law. The law had done in his life exactly what the law was supposed to do. Drove him to the place to pound his chest. Be merciful to me. What the law intended purpose was is you need a savior. And you ain't it. Before the law, men didn't really understand the depth and the breadth of his iniquities. That's why a person could tell me, well, by his stripes, I was healed. He had to die for you. You do not understand the breadth of the law. You was in a place, Terry, of darkness, so dark that when the light came on, it was just amazing to you. And you should open your eyes and you'll realize how dark your world is. I said that. They're not here no more. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. There was a time of ignorance that God overlooked. There was that time when the Redeemer had not yet come. And he overlooked. God overlooked. God was patient. God was tolerant. And the law came. And he exposes every man, woman, and child that you can't keep it. You are absolutely hopeless. You are absolutely helpless. I, I, I want to close with this up for a second because I, I wanted you to see, for you to understand that it gives life, you've got to understand that you're dead. And we don't understand that today. I mean, we've got people who said, well, I'm American, I must be a Christian. I have people who will start here in the spring wanting to get married, and they'll say, uh, do, you, do you do weddings? And I'll, No. And I say, well, what do you do? I make people mad. No. All right? I don't do weddings. Why? It's a long story. Okay? Well, why do you want to get married in a church? Do you attend a church? No. My grandma's Baptist. And she's going to come out for the wedding, and I want to be in a Baptist church. Well, that's silly. I see it in Catholicism. Well, I must be Catholic. Why? Everybody else in my family is Catholic. Moses asked God, show me your glory. Okay, now I'm setting the stage for next week. Remember that? And he hides him in the cleft of the rock. Okay, and, and we all think about it. And God walks by and moons him. <laughs> right? He just walks by, sees his backside. But we miss a phrase. He says, show me your glory. He says, I will let you see my grace and mercy. What was the question? Show me your glory. What is God's glory? His grace and mercy. That's his glory. That's where you all of a sudden realize who he is, who you are, and you pound your chest and you say, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinner. That's where you don't have to get people to prime the pump for you to go for the Lord to beg to be saved. That's why you don't, well, I don't want to say anything. That's embarrassing. No. That's not true. I am a sinner. 
I beg for repentance. I beg for your glory, your grace and your mercy. Save me. If you didn't come to salvation that way, how did you come? How did you get in? At some point, the old covenant has to crush you. So that the glory and the grace and the mercy of the new covenant brings you eternal life now abundantly. See why I believe we need to know the old and the new covenant? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the amazing saints who have gone before us. And Lord, may we... May we bow our knee in absolute humility at your grace and your mercy and your providence of redemption and reconciliation. Thank you, Father, for what Christ has done on that cross. Thank you, Lord, that we look back to it and look forward to your coming to take your people. But until then, Father, may we be adequate ministers of the fragrance of Christ to humanity and to you, Lord, and the new covenant message that you have graced us with. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy to your glory, to your praise. In Christ's name, amen.